Welcome to the Gutsy Ladies Podcast. I'm your host, Bella Reynolds, and I'm a life coach on a mission to support midlife women to live their next chapters with ease, with clarity, and with confidence, to become a gutsy lady. A gutsy lady doesn't fade or shy away, and she doesn't use midlife as an excuse to live a life less fulfilled. She thinks, if not now, when? Until now, the story of midlife hasn't supported this vision for our lives, and it's time to talk about it. In this podcast, I share insights from my personal experience, as well as thoughts and lessons from thousands of hours of coaching. If you want to live your best life and are ready to do the work, then you are in the right place. Let's get started. So thanks for joining me for another episode. And this is going to be a fun one. It's um, all about why the effing hell can't I sleep anymore? And there's two things about this question. Number one, it's a great question to be asking. And if this has attracted you to listen, then clearly there's something going on with your sleep. So I'm really happy that you've decided to listen. And the other thing is, this is a question I have asked myself more and more as I've hit, you know, well into my midlife. So it was interesting. I myself did not follow the advice I'm about to give you, which is why it's so important for me to share it now, because as you will hear me say often, now I know better, I do better. And that's certainly what happened when I really started to understand the value of sleep, particularly in midlife. So at the end of the day, your body, your brain and your mind all leave clues. And so as an expert in your own life, I believe it is your duty to not ignore your dashboard. And sleep is one of those beautiful parts to our incredible biological engineering that we can choose to ignore because we are so adaptable and we'll find ways to just manage anyway. But when you get into the midlife space, if you have been inadvertently ignoring your sleep, I'm going to share some very important reasons why you can no longer do that. Because the other thing about ignoring sleep as one of the vital pillars in health is that ignoring it is a form of outside to in living, which is what I talk a lot about. And it's about putting everything outside your life more important than what's going on in your life. And that's going to, you know, definitely get you unstuck. So a lot of the reasons I'm going to talk about sleep, I mean, there's so many I do, but there's one main reason I'm bringing up today too, is the chicken and egg relationship between sleep and burnout. Is it the lack of sleep I've got that's actually leading me to be feeling like I'm about to burn out? Or is it actually what's going on in my profile around probably about to start to burn out and that is impacting my sleep? And so that linkage is important. And if any of this resonates, just make sure that you click the show notes to a link, which will get you into my mini ebook, which is all about getting ahead of burnout. But either way, in midlife, it is, um, you know, I've been working with literally too many midlifers to ignore the topic of sleep. And right now I need to say up front, no, I am not medically trained as a sleep professional but my background initially was in exercise um, physiology and in the I have spent, you know, it's coming up to 10 years now in the wellness space professionally where I've worked with numerous experts on all areas of health um, and 
I've, I've gained so much knowledge from these people. So what I'm sharing today is the key stuff that I have learned from those experts and from also helping, you know, all the clients I've worked with um, around behaviour change. And the other thing is that I talk about my four laws to mastering midlife. And my second law is to be able to befriend your biology. As I said before, your sleep is an incredible gift that, you know, the mechanism to be able to go to sleep every night as a human is, is really a primal requirement that we have. And so befriending what's going on with your sleep is really part of mastering midlife. So I'm going to talk today about why sleep deprivation, whether it's short-term or chronic, needs to be taken seriously. And just in case you need a wake-up call, excuse the pun, I've got a little piece of evidence with regards to the links with dementia. Because more and more I'm working with midlife men and women who have started to notice what's going on in their families and really wanting to make sure that they are diminishing their risk with regard to um, dementia or even Alzheimer's. I was going to talk about the three habits around poor sleep that um, like the the three key habits that I've come across that midlifers are using that you need to be really aware of. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about three key actions that you can take immediately that will start to address what's going on in your sleep. And it's a, it's a whole list of threes, right? I'm going to finish off with three sleep hygiene habits that I've learned from the experts, I've used myself and I've shared with numerous clients and they actually work. So firstly, three habits around poor sleep that get developed. And the biggest problem I find around these is these become more of the issue than the lack of sleep itself. Because with regards to sleep deprivation, actually I've skipped one, haven't I? I'm going to first talk about sleep deprivation and just what's going on in the like um, can be happening periodically in sort of short-term sleep dep deprivation versus the chronic um, deprivation. So under short-term sleep deprivation, if you're in your midlife, you know what it feels like because over the decades, periodically, it may have been um, related to partying or whatever. You know what it feels like to not get enough sleep. And that's what this is about. You know, on average, the key data is that humans need regularly at least seven hours of sleep. Now, there are lots of other pieces of information about different types of humans wanting different amounts of sleep. But where I've got my evidence from, it's very much around at least seven hours. And um, the short-term symptoms that you'll feel are things like, um, obviously, daytime snooziness, you know, particularly after a big lunch. But a big thing is mood shifts. And I've noticed that has actually got worse and worse as I've aged. Difficulty concentrating, you've got slower thinking processing and it's completely linked to reaction time. And there's this overwhelming, you know, those days I still notice where I have a, you know, an interruption in my sleep pattern that I've just got this brain fog. I just can't operate um, my executive function. So my real thinking ability is diminished. So having that happen periodically, um, you know, out of left field and particularly when you know there's a lot going on, for example, or may be aware that there's been some hormone drops, then that's not what we're really talking about here. What I'm really talking about is that happening periodically and then over time you've developed more chronic sleep issues. 
And I've actually got a particular gutsy lady in mind, this beautiful woman, has admitted to me in more than once that she she has struggled to get good sleep since her sort of late 20s, early 30s when all her children very much came into her nest. And since then, she has barely known. Like that's a true insomnia profile. But the thing I want you to be aware about with chronic deprivation is it completely heightens your risk for physical and mental health problems. Um, these are things like obesity, like direct links. This is, you know, this is not just anecdotally. Direct links with obesity and weight gain. Diabetes, which is just galloping away in our Western world. Um, pain, it's linked with that. And also cardiovascular disease. And also it's that chicken and egg a bit around the hormone imbalance. So chronic sleep issues will mess around with hormone imbalances. But interestingly, I don't know, in my case, in the perimenopausal phase, it was um, hormonal imbalances that were leading me to have the poor sleep. So at the end of the day, I see all of this stuff around sleep. If you are experiencing it, please don't ignore it. Please take on that identity of the expert in your own life and find a way to befriend your biology and start to master your sleep in the midlife space. So three habits around poor sleep that can get developed that I think are more dangerous than the problems with sleep that may have started in the first place. The number one habit is just reinforcing the just push through mentality, very much outside to in living, which means that, look, it may be a couple of bad nights sleep. It's not really a big issue. I'm the sort of person I will deal with that when everything else that's going on around me gets cleaned up. I will almost guarantee if that is what's going on for you and that is your attitude around it, that you will have a life with a full intray till the day you die. So holding back on dealing with your sleep, your sleep habits and your sleep hygiene that could be impacting long-term your health then you are, you're waiting for something that's never going to change. If you are waiting for the outside um, situation or circumstances to change in order for you to start dealing with this really important health issue, then <laughs> you're kidding yourself. So that's one of the habits that uh, I have you know, watched a lot and gratefully the people that come to me, they finally admitted that they're not going to ignore it any longer. The second one comes off the first one. And it can be, oh, I know how I'm going to deal with this. I'm not going to really work out what's going on with my sleep. I know that every time I hook into some alcohol, and I don't say this with judgment, I'm just saying it's interesting the habits that we adapting humans take on. I notice that when I have a couple of drinks at night, then I get to sleep easier. And yes, absolutely, alcohol will sedate. But there are so many issues around using alcohol for its soporific sleep-inducing effects that then make that habit of alcohol combined with the issues around your sleep, it's like a triple whammy. And why do I say that? Because the challenge with using alcohol to help as um, a sleep aid, number one, over long term, you will need more and more and more. Your tolerance to alcohol will always increase, which means you'll need more to get you to sleep. And then that perpetuates the issue because the problem is that alcohol will help you to get to sleep easier, but it's very well known that your quality of sleep is diminished, particularly in the second half of your sleeping. 
so the different phases of sleep get impacted. And, and, and as I said, humans are these most amazing adaptability creatures. So you, you sneakily ignore the diminished capacity that you have. And so if you are using alcohol to get you to sleep, I'm going to really encourage you to remove that just for a period of time to really get a picture of what's going on. Um, because the other thing is it's also masking other things. You will more than likely be having to ramp up your caffeine intake to deal with the energy issues. And I'll almost guarantee that if you are using alcohol to help you to get to sleep and you've been using it some time now, I'm pretty sure your waist measurements and your scale measurements, that you will have increased in weight. So then the third sort of poor sleep habit that is an issue because not so much what's going on with the sleep, but how humans can tend to ignore the real issue is the tricky one around this incredibly distracted environment we live in. It is so easy to wake up at all times of the night and be able to be distracted from your sleep through your mobile phone, um, through any forms of streaming. And if you're even into gaming there, our whole world is so large and so connected that it's almost guaranteed. In fact, I think I saw a, a television show recently that was purely about um, a woman who was struggling to sleep at night and she found another wo a woman or a bloke on the other side of the world and the two of them became insomniacs together. <laughs> so that's the sort of stuff. I mean, that's great for Hollywood, right? But the problem is that if you uh, have got, you know, got into some poor sleep habits and your sleep's been impacted, you haven't tried to get to the bottom of it, then one of the habits you may have got into is when you wake in the middle of the night, you might check your phone. You might get scrolling on Instagram or, or Facebook or something like that. You might even get hooked into a movie thinking that's going to help you. But what you're doing is strengthening a habit loop that could be having even greater um, or like that habit loop may be furthering your impact of sleep rather than starting to help what's going on with your sleep. At the end of the day, what I'm all about is as you as an expert in your own life, it's you taking control of this and getting to the bottom of what's going on with your sleep. It's almost having, it's not almost, it's having that identity that I matter, my health matters, and I'm going to get to the bottom of what's going on with my sleep because it's not normal to be having these disturbances and I'm going to get as you know, get myself in a position to have the best sleep possible as many times a week, a days in a week. So three must-dos to address poor sleep that you can bring on right now today, and these are all proven. I'm really noticing I'm galloping a little bit with this, but also there's a bit of passion here. And the reason there's a lot of passion here is, as I said, leading into the, you know, the anniversary of 10 years of working with this, which is December 2023, I, I reflected on just how many humans that I have worked with in this wellness space. And when it comes to health, it would be the number one area that you can get such gains from and to improve your health. And it's sleep. So that's why you're hearing this passion coming up. So three must-dos. Number one, start a sleep journal slash diary, whatever you want to call it. I suppose it's a giggle as I wrote that down because I thought, yeah, this is just me trying to get you to get in some journaling in your life. 
But the reason I get you to create a sleep diary, same as why the value of food diaries are, if you're going to make some changes in your life and you are hypothesizing or basically saying to yourself, I'm pretty sure my sleep has got crap, therefore I'm going to start to address it, then the first thing to do is to really get clear on how crap it's got. Because sometimes as humans, we may think our sleep is not that good. But when you actually start to jot down what time you're going to sleep, what time you may wake up in the middle of the night, and I wouldn't actually jot that down in the diary when you wake at two or three, I'd get you to jot uh, jot it after you've actually woken up. Hopefully you've got back to sleep. But just jotting down when you are going to sleep, when you're waking up, how you're feeling when you're waking up. And then do this for a very minimum of seven days because what you're also going to start to notice is as you lead into jotting down in the diary about getting to sleep, I want you to start to populate things like how busy has my day been? How, you know, if I'm getting to sleep at this hour, why am I getting to sleep at 10 o'clock when I know that I am best to get to sleep by nine o'clock or I'm best to get into bed by certain hours? So you start to become very, very detective, de- detective-ish about your life. And this creates such a uh, breadth of awareness for you, but it also helps you when you want, if you need to get expert help, because you're not just going from, oh, I think this is what's happening. You're actually going from a place of data. So number one is get a sleep journal or create one, just any pieces of paper, stapled together and put it beside your bed or a little book, whatever you, little notebook, write down what time it is, like put the date on it and do it for at least seven days. What time did you go to sleep? What time did you wake up? How good did you wake up? How, what was the quality of your sleep like? What were the distractions? Were you waking up because you had a busy mind? Were you waking up because your partner's snoring? You're waking up because you're snoring. Are you waking up because you had to go to the loo because you've been having big gallops of water before you go to bed? Start to just really get curious. And then, as I said, that becomes a really cool piece of data that you can use when you do the next steps. Step two, start. If you are using alcohol to get you to sleep, please cease it. Now, I'm a little by little human, so maybe if you're taking four or five to get to sleep at night or a bottle of wine or whatever it is, step it off gradually, but definitely make the commitment that you are going to assess how your sleep is without the alcohol. There is just too much evidence out there that when you remove it, and I'm talking anecdotally as well as um, research about it, when you remove it, there is going to, you're going to uncover the real things that are going on with your sleep. So... If you can go cold turkey, if you're only having one or two a night, I would encourage you as quickly as possible to come off it and then use your sleep diary to notice. You may even want to start your sleep diary while you are drinking and do that for a week and then start to pull the alcohol out and see what goes on. And this is just so important at helping you to start to gather real information about what's going on for you around sleep because you will be able to identify some stuff troubleshoot and problem solve some stuff very simply by using this tool. Now, the third step is I want you to bring in some expert support. So once you've actually identified that 
you you know you've got a sleep diary going on yes you can confirm that you've got some problems with your sleep and and you've taken the alcohol in and you've take you've removed the alcohol from um, using it as a tool to get to sleep and you're still having problems with your sleep or there's the, the problem that might have diminished a little bit but you've still got issues with mood or still struggling to get to sleep then look for some expert support and I would make sure that you have got a good primary health care provider and I'm talking about a doctor a really good doctor in this space you can take all that data with but also going to a doctor that you can have a conversation about hormones because in the perimenopausal phase and even the menopausal phase, every human is completely unique with what's going on as the levels of their key hormones actually um, roller coaster or actually leave their body. And everyone, I mean, I, I do deal with some midlife women that have had no impact on their sleep whatsoever and they're fully menopausal now. And I just go, lucky, lucky you. But there's other areas in their life that they're having to address as well. No one escapes this phase of life. But also for men, because we don't talk about this in the midlife space, but as men's testosterone declines, and you guys are pretty lucky on the whole, it tends to be a more gradual decline. But still, having changes to your testosterone will not just impact the obvious with regards to um, sex drive. They can have impacts on your sleep as well as um, lots of weight gain, as well as things like sleep apnea. But I'm not talking about the specifics of that. I just think by the time you've done a sleep diary and by the time you've removed alcohol and you have really started to get a picture of what's really going on with your sleep and have not been able to amend it yourself, then bring in some help. And it's much better to bring in some help after you've got some of this data rather than going straight away over counter getting some um, sleep tablets because I've used them periodically in my life and I've definitely used them and worked with people in them in the um, mining game and there was barely a human that wanted to continue to use those sort of drugs long term because it had such an impact on their mood and um, how they manage themselves day to day. It's just not a long-term fix. So there's some, you know, they're the three areas that I'd say I'd love you to address. Now, the final three is very much about sleep hygiene. And this is where it comes from having spent a lot of time with lots of experts in this field. What is sleep hygiene? Sleep hygiene is all of the elements around the practice of sleep. So we often only talk about our sleep in context of when our head hits the pillow until we wake up. But there are so many other factors, and you've heard a little bit of them just before, so many other factors that have an impact on whether we'll get to sleep or not, and particularly as we age. So sleep hygiene takes that in, such as what time, you know, it's it's like getting ready to get ready to go to sleep. What are the practices or what are the things that you are doing as you get ready to wind down as you prepare to go to sleep? And I'm going to talk about three key areas of sleep hygiene that I've, you know, I've definitely used with clients. I've used myself and um, experts have helped me to, you know, identify. Number one, there is so much evidence that the consistency around the time that you go to sleep and the time you get yourself wound down to go to bed 
the more consistent and regular and rhythmic you are with that, that is like giving your body lots of triggers to get it prepared to getting ready to go to sleep. So make sure that you, and particularly I'm talking about if you're still in the working world in our working space. So generally most of us are still working Monday to Friday. So it's being really clear what are the times that you notice that is best for you to, for example, if you watch TV after um, dinner or if you might even do some work after dinner, whatever the habits you've got, that you create some rituals around getting ready to get ready to go to bed, such as, you know, a lot of the evidence will say to shut down the laptops or shut down the screen, you know, up to an hour before you want to actually fall asleep. But just really noticing, you know, is there a rhythm to that and making sure there is one. I know for myself that if I do not um, wind myself down in a work week, if I am not wound down and getting myself ready to get into bed by nine o'clock and I'm in daylight savings now, then I know that my chances of not falling to sleep well or waking up a bit fitfully through the night increase. So it's basically lights out or I'm in bed around the 9 o'clock, 9 p.m. space. So the second thing is all around your bedroom being a sanctuary, a cocoon. And I'll probably get in trouble here because I know lots of people love having screens like televisions or laptops or even their mobile phone in their bedrooms. I still have my mobile phone in my bedroom, but I'm really particular about what goes on because I use it as an alarm still. But one of the things is to have your bedroom as a cocoon. It's like every time you walk into that bedroom, your brain, so if you think about the habit loop, the triggers around it are, oh, I'm coming into a space where I'm to wind down. And so it's really important also if there's a partner in your life that you're on the same page here. Because if you're someone that really wants to protect that cocoon space and the person that you're sleeping with likes to watch, you know, videos out loud on their phone or likes to watch a movie to get to sleep, I think you're going to have to have some, if, if sleep is something that you're struggling with at the moment, please, you know, make some choices around committing to making some changes there with the cocoon environment. And also a whole new topic that I could talk about is whether it's really appropriate that you both sleep in the same bed or bedroom together. Um, I know it's almost a shame my husband feels when I say that, you know, we've had a lot of periods where um, I've got a lot going on with work or he's got a lot coming and going that it just works for us to sleep in separate bedrooms. Now, it's not the ideal thing long-term for intimacy, but, you know, if it's something to re-correct sleep hygiene, then you've got to put it on the table. Now, the third and really important thing I want to finish off with, with regard to sleep hygiene, is your whole identity and practices around importance of sleep. So if you want to make sleep important, you become the sort of person that protects their sleep. And that means that your identity around it is, I'm the sort of person that will commit to making sleep a priority. Now, that might seem pretty rudimentary, but as with all behavior change, it all stems from the identity that you are seeking to be. And if right now you know there's not a lot of rhythm in what you're doing, you may find that you haven't prioritized sleep so much and you may have prioritized getting certain work done or being in social media or whatever, then you're going to have to make a concerted effort 
to become the sort of person that makes sleep a priority and then see what the rewards are. Does it improve your health? Does it improve your mental health? Does it improve your productivity? Does it improve your mood? What does it do? Does it help you to be optimally performing as the human you want to be? Do you notice, in fact, that it actually improves the foods that you're choosing to eat? It might help you with your energy levels to do some of the movement that you're wanting to do. Sleep is so important and has such a domino effect on us. Good sleep does, as does poor sleep. So I also just want to finish. I mentioned at the beginning that there's one one piece of evidence that I came across with regards to the links between poor sleep and dementia. And I'm not finishing this off to be particularly dramatic, but it's important for us. We have such higher levels of um, uh, mental health illnesses, but also things like dementia and Alzheimer's. And this was a study that was done um, through the National Institute of Aging and they released it in 2021. And researchers examined data from nearly 8,000 people in England at, at starting at the age of 50. So this, long, this study was really looking at people, particularly in the midlife space. And I just want to finish off with the fact that the analysis of the data showed that people in their 50s and 60s getting six, out of, six hours of sleep or less were at greater risk of developing dementia later. Compared to those getting normal sleep, defined as seven hours, people getting less rest each night were 30% more likely to be diagnosed with dementia. 30%, that is a massive stat. And yes, I have only pulled one piece of evidence out. But if this disturbs you, and if you already know that it's something that you've got on your radar as a potential area of issue as your age, what have you got to lose by taking on some of the things I've spoken about? And if you think that there is, once again, this issue or link with regards to this sleep issue leading you to be burning out from life, then make sure you download that little mini ebook that I've developed. The link will be in the show notes so that you can look at all the different ways in which I was able to mitigate um, some of the sleep issues and get ahead of burnout. I've really enjoyed sharing this with you and I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Have a cracking day. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gutsy Ladies podcast. Are you ready to recharge your life? Are you slipping towards burnout? Or maybe you're already there. (laughs) Make sure you grab my free guide called Heal from Burnout and Recharge Your Life for some really actionable tips that I learned the hard way. Click on the link in the show notes of your podcast app. If you haven't already, I'd love you to subscribe and send this episode to a friend who just may need a little reminder that she's a gutsy lady too. See you next week.